Today's guest is the world's leading authority on learning how to learn, Dr. Barbara Oakley, who's a professor of engineering at Oakland University. After struggling with math and science at a young age, Barbara decided one day to master the art and science of effective studying and has since taught literally millions of students with her world-famous online courses on learning more effectively. So Dr. Oakley, welcome to the show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Max. No, I'm, I'm super excited for, for this episode because I think it's going to just deliver so much tremendous value to, to anyone listening to this that wants to study or learn or educate themselves more effectively. But in fact, I want to start off with something different because you actually have such a super fascinating background in terms of how you got to where you are today. Because, you know, most you know, scientists, most professors I talk to, they, you know, graduate from high school, they went to college and, you know, then they got the PhD and then they became a professor, right? But that's, that's not really your path, is it? No, not at all. I sort of backed into things and I, I'm really glad that I did because I, I do think that we're, uh, as a society, we reward people for specializing. When you are in, uh, in education or anything involved in academia, you're rewarded for how much material yeah. you know about some tiny topic. I mean, it may seem huge to you, but it, in the greater scheme of everything there is to learn, it's still a very tiny topic. So that can, I think, cause problems because experts mm, sometimes may not know as much in the big picture as they think they might know. Yeah. So for me, I, uh, I started out uh, as I enlisted in the army right out of high school. I, I thought, oh, I want to learn a language because I can't do math and science. I always yeah. hated it and I was terrible at it when I was growing up. So I, um, I enlisted in the army. I went to the Defense Language Institute and I studied Russian for about a year and a half. And then um, I, I got an in-service ROTC scholarship, a reserve officer training course scholarship. And I was able to go to the university and get my first degree in Slavic languages and literature. And then the army in their great wisdom commissioned <laughs> me as a signal corps officer, which doesn't mean that you're just uh, standing around talking to people. It means that you're installing radios or helping people, uh, in fact, supervising groups of people who are installing radios or, uh, or cable or switching systems and so forth. And I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. I was supposed to be, you know, managing and super supervising all these people. And I was not surprisingly, I was pretty bad at the job. But I did find something that was interesting. I had always thought you know, this technology and math and science stuff, I'm getting along just fine without it. You don't need it. In past centuries, nobody needed to know calculus. Or <laughs> and so I don't need to know it either. But then what I found was that in today's day and age, you can actually do a lot better for yourself if you do open your mind and learn a little bit more broadly. And particularly, if you know a little bit about math and science and technology, it can be really quite helpful for you. Because I didn't realize it, but there were a lot of people around who thought just like me that they didn't need to know math or science or anything like that. And they were all looking for the same jobs that I was looking for. <laughs> so I went back to the university when I got out of the military, in, in, in between times, or when I uh, got out of the military, I, I ended up, I would, I would work really hard studying engineering, well, studying towards be, uh, trying to retrain my brain and learn math and science enough to begin learning engineering. But then I could only take like six months at a time, and I would go out and work as a Russian translator out on Soviet trawlers, and I'd, I'd you know, go out, drink all the time. <laughs> yeah, how, how was that? What, what was that life look like? I mean, I know you wrote a whole book on it. <laughs> so, uh, it was, so, so how did uh, that sort of affect you and, and your later trajectory? 
Oh, I think it affected it a lot in um, ways that very much surprised me. Because one of the things, and we'll, we'll go off on a little side tangent here, but one of the things that it taught me was how easy it is to get massive groups of people to believe stuff that's completely untrue. And as long as you get enough people to believe it, they'll all believe it. <laughs> and you could, I mean, you could point to them and say, you, you can point out a door that's white. And if you get enough people saying that door is black, you know, you'll start getting everybody to say that door is black, even if it's white. And yeah. uh, what I found working with the Soviets was it, it's, it's really easy to brainwash entire groups of people. And, uh, and so that made me, when I got out, and, and a lot of that brainwashing takes place because people think that they're doing something good and beneficial for other people. And so one of the research areas that I started working on uh, later, years later, was pathologies of altruism. And so that's um, when you do something that you think is good, but a, you know, insofar as is possible, objective observer that's looking could say, you know, it's pretty clear that that actually isn't very good. That if wow. you are donating wow. that money to, um, you know, to a uh, non-governmental uh, non agency or organization in Africa, that that's actually not going to the people you want to help. It's going to the mercenary uh, dictators who are actually creating the problems in the country and you're actually just enabling that situation to continue. Or, for example, you have a, um, a drug addict for a relative and you, you're trying to help them and they beg you for money and you give them some money. You're not really helping that person. Uh, and it goes on from societal levels. I mean, uh, everybody says, oh, you've got to help this group and this group and this group. <laughs> and then before you know it, society is deeply in debt. And what you've actually done is taken that money from the children and the grandchildren to come. And, uh, and inflation kicks in and it's all, but it's all because you have been thinking you're helping certain groups of people. So anyway, that's my, my little side tangent. Yeah, but it, that is, that's so fascinating. In fact, uh, one thing more I want to point out that, that I read in your research where you were talking about you know, when we try to help other people, but oftentimes it depletes our own resources so much that we actually negatively affect our lives, right? And I, I, I've realized this so many times when talking to people is like they're giving themselves up, they're giving up their dreams and whatever because they think they need to support someone else, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a friend, whatever. So they never actually go out and pursue their own dreams because they think I need to support that person, right? And that I That's thought right. was such a fascinating idea. It, it's interesting. For example, in my own family, um, I think it's uh, like my husband is just a hero. I mean, he's a superstar. And so, I mean, sorry, just to jump in there, but you met him at the South Pole, right? <laughs> yes, I did. Yeah. I had to just put that out there. Like, that is just the coolest story ever. So, of course, he's a. That's right. After I got right. done working with the Russians uh, up in the Bering Sea, I, I went down and worked as a radio operator at the South Pole station in Antarctica. And that's where I met my husband. And, uh, and I like to joke that we started global warming down there. Um, but, um, he's, but he's, uh, he's so good. Um, like I actually sacrificed for some years in that I, I uh, was a stay-at-home mom for a while. Um, and, you know, my husband was the, the breadwinner of the family and so forth. And I think some people could say, oh, well, you know, that's a taking advantage situation by either one or the other, but actually it worked out beautifully for us. Um, then as the children got a little older, he helped put me through uh, the university to get my PhD. And so it's, it, you know, it was a, I think that in every family, there's times when you support one and then the other supports, you know, so you kind of trade things off. But then when my father got Alzheimer's, 
uh, I, f I found that the, the probably the most difficult thing was to have to transition and to realize that I, I needed to stop trying to be all things to all people because I, I could not take care of my father, be a great mother, try to get tenure, uh, and, you know, doing all of these things. And then my father could not remember me from day to day. Wow. Um, and so we had him in a, a wonderful facility, but it wasn't until, you know, I, it was almost too, you know, I'd gone too long. I was taking away from my own family to give to my father what, what time I had. And I was being kind of pathologically altruistic in that, um, I, I wasn't helping him. He couldn't even remember that I was there most of the time. And it, it, was, it was really negatively affecting our kids. Uh, so, you know, I had to kind of cut back a little bit because I, at that time I didn't realize I was being pathologically altruistic, but I certainly was um, trying to burn all candles at all ends and, uh, and you know, the, the ones I loved the most were actually uh, sometimes being hurt by this. Yes, but I mean, that, that's a fantastic insight, right? Yeah. Is that like, I mean, the relationships and the people around us necessarily almost require some kind of sacrifice in terms of time and energy and stuff, right? And so sometimes I think it's really this awareness of this ability to balance the two sort of extremes, right? Of like not going too intense and like you're saying, burning the candle on all ends, right? And at the same time, we want to support them, right? And you want to be there, of course, for your dad um, when he needs you, right? So it's really about this sort of balancing act, I guess. It is. And I think one of the hard things for me, too, is, and, and maybe this is different for female professors than male professors, but especially in engineering, there are, there can be students who are, you know, most students are fantastic, but there are some students who are what I almost would call sticky. And no matter how much time you give a sticky student, it is never enough time. They want <laughs> you. And it's not because... They follow you home and... <laughs> practically. It, I mean, they will be there every office hour. I actually had a student move in um, to the lab that was right across from my office. And I mean, literally, <laughs> a sleeping bag. No way. <laughs> and uh, it's... So you, you can have these, you know, sometimes, it, you know, for me, one of the hardest things to learn to do was to learn how to um, kind of be courteous, but not too warm all the time uh, with face-to-face -face students, because some of them will really be sticky. You can just, you can never give them enough. <laughs> and, uh, and I had never thought of that going into, um, going into uh, professoring or teaching. And, and certainly my uh, six foot six colleague in uh, engineering who, who looks pretty much like the Incredible Hulk, he doesn't <laughs> seem to have as many difficulties with Yes, oh, I guess because they're scared. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, but he's a really good teacher. Yeah. They love him, but, uh, but not in such a sticky way, I think, mm -hmm. most of the time. Anyway, yeah. that's just- But, but it's so, so interesting. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, what you think is that you are giving your time and you are helping someone by giving their time, your time. But actually, sometimes you're not. You know, there's some people who just want your time <laughs> and they want your face time. And, and it isn't really so much you. It's either you're a warm body or you are a warm body who has some kind of gravitas. So they feel kind of special, you know, taking your time. So it's, um, I don't know, it was just interesting to learn about, uh, you know, that this is one quirk of humanity uh, that you can sometimes run into. Yeah, and you find those mosquitoes, right? Like chasing the, <laughs> the warm bodies. Yeah, but then uh, you have so many students who are just so, like, I remember one student 
and I'll make up his name here uh, for the sake of anonymity, but he, he walked in one day and I said, oh, hello, Keith. And it was a couple of days after the, the semester was started. And then he was a great student all semester. And the final day of class, he said, you know, when I walked in that door, the, that right after class had, had first begun, and you said, hello, Keith. I knew this was going to be a wonderful subject and a wonderful semester. And isn't that interesting? One little thing yes. made of all the difference. Uh, and I'm sure it was other things built on that. But simply knowing someone's name sometimes makes a huge difference in, in everything. Yes, for sure. And I've, I've realized the exact same thing in college when, when I was, you know, in, studying in the US, right? It was like, like the professors that knew my name, right? That maybe, you know, we had like a, a common interest that we would talk about after class or like, it's these little things, right? That, that you can connect with and that really make like the whole class so much more enjoyable. And so I love what you're saying here about Doesn't it yeah. noticing the little things, right? Exactly right. Yeah, yes. I love that. Now I want to transition us a little bit back to, you know, your start in, in the sciences, right? So you said, you know, you, you basically finished your, your army track, you finished, you know, radio station at, at the South Pole, and you started studying, right? So, so what was that like in the beginning? Did you still have those, you know, internal beliefs of like, I suck at math, I suck at science, or how do you change that then? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, my first months were really scary uh, because I I'd sort of made this big transition. I was back at the university and uh, could I really do it? Mm. And I studied so hard. I mean, I was, but a big thing I didn't realize was an advantage was I began to use those same techniques to learn in math and science that I had used to learn a language. And I didn't realize it, but actually those techniques work beautifully for learning in math and science. And I feel sad for students today, for example, when you're growing up and like you're going through one, grades one through eight, a lot of the ways, for example, that math and science are taught, particularly math, it, it's taught in such a horrific way that it actually can cripple your ability to be successful in those subjects. It's, it's almost like diametrically opposite to how we know we learn effectively. And so anyway, for me, I, I used a lot of these same simple techniques that I'd used to learn a language. Uh, I, I would practice, I would uh, kind of almost as if like if I was solving a problem, I would see if I could do it all, you know, first written down and then see if I could step through all the steps in my head so that it was very natural and could flow very quickly. And uh, I could look at different problems and go, oh, oh, there's this, yep, know this one, this one. Oh yeah, I know the differences between these two. And then after a lot of practice, I actually could do pretty well. I still remember one time I was, uh, I was kind of friends with this one guy and he was going to med school and I kept doing better on a on the tests in chemistry than he was doing. And you could have calculators then. And so I remember, uh, I remember he, he said, Oh, can I see your calculator? And he, and I, I gave it to him. And he, what he did was he zeroed out the whole memory on the calculator. And, you know, I just took it back and just thought, um, uh, it's, uh, well, it's been zeroed out, no big deal. <laughs> but what he was doing, he was thinking I had all this information entered into memory. And <laughs> he said he just cheated and he couldn't believe it. Yeah, yeah. He thought, oh, I'll get all upset because that's that's the secret yeah. to how I was doing well, but it wasn't at all. Uh, and I remember him just kind of being a little miffed that um, I, I, you know, that wasn't the way I was doing well. Yeah, and you're still competing him. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, one thing that I did find was, uh, so I remember I was taking this one semiconductor class and the students there 
well, I, I, I studied really hard. I did every single problem in, in the book up to that date. It was uh, through chapter three, and I did every problem. There were like 80-some problems. Wow. And, um, and then the, and I went to every class, took careful notes. I knew everything. And then the, the teacher, gave, the professor gave the test, and I flat out flunked it. I mean, every single question I missed. And he didn't give partial points. And finally, I, um, I, I got the test and I was just horrified because I didn't know how to work any of the problems. And it turned out that you were supposed to make a little assumption for every problem. He didn't tell you you were supposed to make it, but you were supposed to make it. So how did all the other students or most all of the other students in the class do well? It's easy. They all had old versions of this guy's tests. <laughs> and so, I, anyway, I went and I talked to this guy and I, I said, look, you never taught this to us. It was never in the book to this time. It was never in the homework problems. Look, I did every homework problem and he was just sort of like, sorry, I'm not going to change a grade. And, um, you know, because professors can be that way. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, uh, so anyway, you better believe that when I finally figured out what was going on, that the others uh, in the class were just looking at old tests, that they were in special groups and they would share them. Well, I got in these special groups and I started looking at the old tests. <laughs> and it turns out that that's a, if you're in college, that's a really a handy thing to do is to look at old tests because a lot of professors, especially in, in the STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math disciplines, what they'll do is they, they've used up every single question that they can even think of, you know, after they've been teaching for 10 years. So they start going to like their old books or other books and they'll put a question on and they'll think, oh, I know how to do that one. And they won't actually work it. And so then they don't realize that it actually uses several terms or, it, or does things in a way that it assumes something you didn't really teach to students. Um, and so a, a lot of teachers' old tests have these kind of quirks and if you can get some copies of their old tests, it can really help you. And it's not that you just sit there and memorize the solutions to old tests. You just use them as extra study problems to learn from and to practice with. But just that simple trick of using old, uh, getting hold of old tests from a teacher, a, a really good company that I like is Course Hero. And that's, uh, Course Hero has notes uh, and old tests and all sorts of things from uh, from teachers. And I don't think of it as a cheating thing at all. I think it's just uh, research has shown that one of the best ways to, to do well when you're trying to learn a new subject is to do lots and lots of practice tests. And that's what Course Hero can give you. So I, I, I really like their materials. I do have to mention, I remember this one brilliant, brilliant, brilliant guy I knew. And he was always, uh, never tell students to memorize anything. Memorization is so bad. It's evil. <laughs> and I, I just sat there laughing because this guy's, he was, he got his PhD from Princeton his memory was so phenomenal that he would go in, take a test, come out, and write the whole test and all the answers out and give wow. it to the fraternity to go into the files. And of course, he says, memory. <laughs> yeah, I don't know it's easy, right? <laughs> he can remember anything. So, uh, you know, it's just, sometimes I think in education, one of the biggest problems is that all the high mucky mucks who are teaching about how to learn. Uh, are really super smart and so and they have great memories and so they're teaching about how to learn using techniques that that don't work as well for normal people and so that's that's what Terry Sanowski and I teach about is just sort of how to learn if you're if you're not mis 
or genius? How can you still learn effectively and as efficiently as you can, um, you know, given the fact that you're, you don't have a photographic memory, whatever that might be. Yes, I yeah. absolutely love that. I could literally hear those, you know, students there listening to this podcast, um, like literally just cheering them up, right? When you're talking about, you know, looking at these old tests and all of these techniques that people can use to really prepare themselves like in the best way possible. So what are some other techniques, like really specifically study techniques that people can use to really prepare themselves and actually understand and learn things more deeply? Okay, so there's so many that <laughs> it's, uh, it's overwhelming, but I'll start with one that I wish I had had when I was uh, learning uh, originally. Uh, and this involves a, a study, a flashcard technique called I do recall. And I do recall is, it, it's, um, so just Google it up and it's a website and it's been created by a doctor who's retired now, but he's sort of made his fortune as an entrepreneur. And now he's, he's created this wonderful website that shows you how to learn in the same way that he learned. And I'll, I hope it's, I hope he, he won't mind if I reveal, but actually he was originally a terrible student. Wow. I mean, even in college, he was terrible. And then he sort of figured out how to use some of these study techniques uh, that are on this website, I do recall. And he became, um, he graduated number one in his medical school class. Wow. And he, part of the secret for how he did it was he didn't attend classes. He didn't attend classes? <laughs> You yeah. shouldn't say this as a professor. <laughs> you know, and I think that's another really bad thing. Uh, and it's, and that is that um, professors and academics get so enamored of themselves yeah. that they don't really realize that what really counts is, is the student learning. And if there are ways that they can learn, even without having you in the room, that's really okay because it isn't all about the teacher. It's all about the student. Love that way. And, and so what uh, David Handel the, uh, did, he's the founder of I Do Recall, is he began to study in a way where he would only, he would try his best to only read the material one time. And it can, it can help sometimes to, you're getting a sort of a, uh, an idea of what's going on, let's say in a chapter you're reading. But you don't want to sit there, read the chapter, and then read it again, and then maybe read it again. And you think you're studying, but what you're actually doing is wasting your time. Because the material seems as if it's becoming more familiar, and it is but it's actually not going into long-term memory. And only when it goes into long-term memory have you actually learned it. So what research is showing now, the most effective way to put something in long-term memory is to study it and then see if you can retrieve it from your long-term memory. So for example, let's say you look at a page or a, a couple of pages of something you're studying. When you're done, look away and see if you can retrieve the key ideas from your memory. Now, this website I mentioned, I do recall, what you can do with this website is you can upload materials, for example, a PDF or, or a PowerPoint or a PDF about PowerPoint from your classes or whatever. And you can, you can um, click on it and create a little flashcard of that material. So uh, you can click right there, create a flashcard, and then what you can do is just test yourself. How do you remember it? And, and it's so funny because I'll read, for example, I'll read a really difficult um, journal article. And I'll go, yeah, 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 I got it, got it, got it. And, but, but I'll make myself create a couple of flashcards from the most important ideas. If you do this after a while, you begin to realize that, wait a minute, 
you may have understood something when you read it in the paper, but you don't actually remember it and you can't link it in with other ideas. But if you study it with little flashcard kind of reviews over several days, you look at it completely differently and then you realize, oh, now I'm really learning it. And it's a, it's a wonderful feeling and it's it's kind of, it's just interesting because I had never approached my learning that way and it's, it's, it's super beneficial. But it, I guess in some ways I, I sort of have because I've used flashcards when I've um, learned language or learned key equations or, or some of these important ideas. But the ease with which you can kind of click on something and create these kinds of flashcards on I do recall is I think just pretty spiffy. Yes, it sounds like a great technique. And to me, what it really sounds like is it has to be effortful, right? If we really want to, you know, get memory sort of stored in the, the long-term memory, we need to sort of engage with the material more than just reading through it and reading through it and reading through it, right? But we need to actually like recall it, right? And really think about it deeply so that it actually sort of cements in the brain, right? That's exactly right. And But I'd like to point out one asset. Let's say that you have to go over and over and over something in order to learn it. Uh, as opposed to my friend, the, the PhD from Princeton, who can remember things effortlessly. So you might say, oh, well, he learns it so much better than I do because I have to go over and over and over it. But what you don't realize is that that effort that you're putting into it, you can actually learn things more deeply and actually be more creative with them because you're having to put information in long-term memory and that effortful process of getting it in there, which actually mostly occurs because you're trying to get it out of there, um, is it, it, it crystallizes it. So you understand it in a very deep and very simple way that the person person who's super smart and has great memory cannot see. So does that mean that having a bad memory can almost be an advantage actually because it forces us to really like understand and study material much more in depth? Precisely. In fact, one thing that is seen sometimes in medical schools is that sometimes students with super good memories they will just procrastinate until maybe the night before a big test of an anatomical terms. And so the person who has not such a good memory, they have to study for days and days and days before that in order to get all these terms crammed into their long-term memory or as much as they can into long-term memory. But then what happens is, uh, let's say that there's a, a test on cardiac function so you're not just memorizing the anatomical terms, the parts of the heart. You actually have to understand how the heart is beating, how everything is flowing, what valves are opening, what's closing, all this kind of stuff. The person with the good memory who just is used to cramming at the last minute, what they do is they'll come up and they're about to study the night before the big exam and they can't understand what's going on. They don't have enough time to really understand this difficult material. And so the medical schools sometimes struggle with, hey, why is, you know, why is this student great in some things? And then they'll just flunk sometimes. And, and that's what's going on. A good memory can actually can be an asset sometimes, but it also can create problems. Hitler, for example, had a fantastic memory. And uh, he could remember all the armaments of all the divisions and all this kind of thing. And his generals would come up and say, you know, you can't do that. I don't think it's a good idea for you to have the Eastern Front and the Western Front all at the same time. And he'd say, look, can you name all the officers all in all of your divisions can you name all of these different armaments and so forth and of course they couldn't so he'd say well how dare you second guess me i'm smarter than you wow. but he wasn't smarter he was just he just had this good memory 
Wow, that is so interesting. And, you know, I, I shared your story with you before about, uh, you know, finals week in, in my, my university when I was doing my bachelor's in the US, where like people would literally, for our listeners, bring their blankets and just sleep in a library for like a week while, you know, getting, you know, high on coffee and pizza, right? <laughs> but obviously, that's not really the, the best way to actually learn something. So, what should people do instead? Well, this retrieval practice idea is a very important one. And, a, a major issue is this idea of procrastinating. So putting everything off until the very end of the semester, that's a great way to cram things in and ultimately do more poorly in your studies. Because what you're doing is you're actually shoving stuff into this kind of way station of the hippocampus. And you can, you can get quite a bit of material in there, but it's a pretty leaky bucket. As soon as the test is done, all falls out of your brain. Uh, the best way to learn is to do some every day. So uh, if you ha let's say you have five hours to learn some material. Don't cram five hours the day before the test. Do one hour per day for five days because what's happening is not only are you learning at that time, but so you learn one hour and then you go to sleep at night and that actually reinforces the learning. And they're seeing now, they can actually see little dendritic spines popping out of your dendrites and making a connection, a little synaptic link with another neuron. And this, a lot of this process can happen as you're sleeping. It also, it, it, it helps, sleep helps, it's almost like a fixative. So these little dendritic spines and the synapses, uh, they, it, it it kind of makes them more permanent so that, you know, if you study one one day, so for one hour one day, then the next day, then the next day, and if you do that for five days, you've not only got that learning that occurred while you were studying that day, but additional learning that was taking place as your mind was kind of practicing and cementing in those links overnight. So that's why um, procrastination is such a, a terrible um, thing for students. And the best way to avoid procrastination that I've found uh, is the Pomodoro technique. And that's that was invented by an Italian, Francesco Cirillo, in the 1980s. It's a wonderful technique. It's so simple. You just um, get rid of all distractions. So that means your cell phone goes off or you get, get it on silent, no pop-ups on your computer. Set a timer for 25 minutes, work as intently as you can for 25 minutes, and then give yourself a little five minute or so reward. And what this, what can the reward be? It can be uh, have a cup of tea, talk with your friends, check out a website. Um, ultimately, the more easy, that, that little five minute break is, the more your mind will actually rest, relax, and transfer information from the hippocampus to long-term memory, which is what you want to be happening. Yes, it sounds like this, this idea of going from focus to diffused mode and sort of switching between the two modes constantly back and forth, right? Of really focusing for 25 minutes or whatever it is, and then diffusing sort of letting your mind rest to actually like be able to sort of cement those things in your brain, right? That's right. And that little rest period we now know is, is an important part of learning as the actual focus part. I mean, you can't learn without focusing, at least as an adult uh, for most things. But uh, you, a lot of times people think the only time you learn is when you're focusing. But it's when you're taking those little breaks that your mind starts consolidating and making sense of what you've learned. So those little breaks are important too. You know, for sure. So, so, so assuming someone does that, right? They do like 25 minutes of studying, five minutes of, you know, resting. What is sort of the like daily limit of how far would be like sort of the ideal amount of time studying? Like, can we study for three hours, five hours, 10 hours? Like, what is, where do you see the limit for most people? in terms of actually effectively studying? See, um, there's been some studies of medical school students, which I, I think they're pretty much 
they have this fire hose of information. So I think they're, some of what they learn is actually the most difficult of all learning. And they've found that if those students study more than eight hours a day, they can't really, it, it doesn't make any difference. Wow. Um, for, um, but um, for many, for most people, if about, you know, you can work for eight hours and you can get some value from it. But prime time for people in learning is about four hours. Anders Ericsson, the, he's a, sort of an expert about ex experts. Yes, love him. He was also on the show, actually. Yes. Oh, he's, yeah, I love his work. Yes, yes fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he has found that basically about four hours is your, uh, is the real hardcore limit where you can do um, hard, creative, or, or kinds of intellectual work, you can keep working past that, of course, and you can still get some out of it. So I think somewhere, it depends on what you're studying, of course, but uh, it's, it's probably somewhere between four hours uh, as a limit to, to eight hours. Um, if, and it, again, it depends on what you're doing. I, some of my students have they're working two jobs, they're taking full-time classes, they're, they're going every single second they possibly can. So these are people, we're, we're not talking four or eight hours, we're talking- Like two, 15 hours, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and so sometimes I think in your life, you have to do what you have to do. Um, but you know, optimally, I think four to eight hours is somewhere around, um, I mean, if you're really, looking to optimize that somewhere in that is probably a good stretch. But if you have a perfect memory, you probably can get away with less. Yeah. <laughs> now, assuming people, you know, overcome the procrastination, they actually do all the studying the correct way. And then it's test time, right? And this is for many people, um, really the time when they, they start getting super nervous and afraid and shaky, right? How, you know, what are some tips that you'd give, you know, other students or, you know, people that want to, you know, speak on stage or perform at athletic event, how do people actually in the moments that matter most when they're about to take that test, how can they perform at their best? So one thing that is very important when, when it comes to studying, if you have studied using retrieval practices, so you've tested yourself constantly, you will find that you are less nervous on tests and research has shown this. Well, let's say that you have studied optimally. You've used a lot of uh, retrieval techniques and you, you're pretty comfortable that you know the material, but you just get really nervous, which is probably uh, a fair number of students like this or like this. I, I, I certainly was like this. One thing that can be very helpful is to watch your breathing because what your tendency is to breathe very shallowly when you're afraid it, and you're not drawing air deep down into your lungs. So what you want to do, and I'm going to take my hand so I, I have it on my belly. And when I'm breathing, I want to try to draw air in so that it expands and actually almost moves my hand. And of course, your lungs don't go that, quite that deep. But if, if you're trying to draw that air in very deeply, because when you're breathing only shallowly up here, you're actually, it's, it's part of that fight, flight, or freeze, um, you know, and freezing is what people do when they're really afraid sometimes, and breathing very shallowly helps you freeze, but it also doesn't get enough oxygen in, and so you get very nervous. You think it's because it's the test, but it's actually because you're not drawing in enough oxygen, and so, of course, your body is getting pretty nervous. So this simple breathing technique is really helpful, not only for tests, but also when you're doing public speaking. Um, right before you go on stage, sometimes you'll get this little bit of, oh my gosh, you know, and your hands will get all clammy and so forth. And that's when you want to take the deep breathing and it, it can really help quite a bit. Another thing is just reframe it as, oh, I'm feeling these feelings of, fear 
or test anxiety, reframe that as it's actually the same neurochemicals as when you're just excited to do your best. So reframe it that way. Just say, I feel nervous because I'm excited to do my best. And that simple reframing has been found to be helpful for students as well. Yeah, I love that. First of all, breathing, I think, is so powerful um, just in terms of you know, allowing you to really calm down and center yourself again and sort of go back in a present moment and not have your thoughts kind of spiral anywhere, right? And then this, this reframing, I think, also really powerful because like what this allows you to do, I think, is, is, is sort of use those, you know, those feelings as fuel almost, right? Because essentially it's designed to prepare you for, for like an attack or something, right? But it's designed to prepare you for like a peak performance, right? For awakening you, right? And I think in that, if like you start to look at it, like my body's essentially waking up to perform at its best, right? I think there's a very different, you know, it creates a very different sort of mindset than, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm freaking out, I'm nervous, right? Right. Another thing is uh, a tip is a lot of times professors will say, do the easy problems first and then save the hardest ones for last. And that's about the worst advice you can possibly have unless you haven't studied at all, in which case, take those easy problems. <laughs> just just get a few points at least. <laughs> yeah. But the, word, the best thing to do is what I call the hard start technique. And with this technique, you simply um, look over the test very quickly and then see which one is the hardest problem. And pick that one out and work for only a minute or two until you feel yourself getting stuck. Stop and go to another problem. And while you're working on that other problem, that background diffuse mode is working away, processing. So do a couple easier problems. When you return later to this hardest problem, you will be able to make much more progress on it because you've had time to kind of use your mind as a bit of a double processor. And you process some of that information in the background that can help you go much further than if you just saved it till the end of the test when you're most nervous, have the least amount of time, and, and of course, can't really think effectively. Well, I love that. I've, I've never heard that before. That, that sounds so, so useful. It, may, it makes so much sense, right? So I love that. It's very helpful. I, and I get emails from people going, I, I tried that. And it's, really, it's made such a huge difference in how well I do on tests. The only thing is it can't work for some of those tests where you only get one computerized question at a time. But oh, I'm sure most you have tests to. aren't like that. Yeah. No, I love that. Now, can you share with us, I love this concept of procrastinate pain. Can you? <laughs> procrastinate pain. I, I just love that. I love that. Yeah, can, can you share with us what that is? Because I think it's really such a, such a shift in how people view this whole procrastination. So when you even just think about something you don't like or don't want to do, it activates the portions of your brain that experience pain. It's part of your insular cortex. So it's that same place where you get, uh, you're not feeling so good with the flu. Yeah, that's, that's that pain area. And so what does your mind do when you feel like this icky feeling, oh, I don't want to work on this? Your mind is like a butterfly. It says, oh, it hurts if I think about this thing. I will just think about Facebook. <laughs> yes, it's so much more fun. And then off you go and you're, you know, off on Twitter or whatever, floats your boat on social media. And it's really... Um, and that's how a lot of procrastination happens. It's simply that pain in the brain, procrastinating, I love that. And, and so you change your, your uh, thinking to something else. And this is where I, I do think it's so helpful to use something like the Pomodoro technique. Because what can so often happen with procrastination is that you, 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 you think about something, you maybe even work a minute or two, and then you're like, oh gosh, this is just so unpleasant. I'm going to change my thinking into something else. And you're almost like a butterfly flitting painfully, you know, from one thing to another, anything except what you should be doing. 
So the Pomodoro, what that does is it locks you in for a 25 min minute period. And that simple act of locking yourself in, you take that little break afterwards, although you can keep going if you want to after the 20, I mean, you can, if you want to do 25, 45, an hour or whatever, sometimes 25 minutes is a good thing to start with. But if you feel like keeping going, you certainly can keep doing that. But uh, it has been found that after about 20 minutes, remember that pain in the brain? It disappears after about 20 minutes. So the very thing that you've been going, oh, I hate this, I don't wanna do this, and you drag yourself and you want to keep changing what you're focusing on, and after about 20 minutes, you start kind of getting in the flow. And then you're, and then the, the buzzer rings or it, the timer goes off or, or and you just think, oh, you know, I want to keep going. And it, that's because the pain has gone away. So the Pomodoro technique is just really great for not only getting you more productive, but actually getting you in the flow. The one thing is don't sit there and think, oh, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to finish all this homework set in this 25 minutes. No, all you have to do is think, I'm going to work as effectively as I can for those 25 minutes. Don't think about the painful thing because that'll just activate the, the feelings of pain. Just think, I gotta do 25 minutes, not a piece of cake. Anybody can do that. Yeah, so it really sounds like it's about focusing on a process of simply putting in sort of those minutes, right, of getting going and then over time, and I've realized this in so many things, whether it's running, right? You're feeling tired. You really don't want to go outside, right? And then you put in your shoes and you just head out for five minutes. And usually you like, you will start to feel great, right? And it's the same yeah. thing. It sounds like what yeah. we're studying, right? That like over time, the brain sort of adapts and gets into flow mode. And then from there, it just flows really and becomes so much easier to just keep going and going. That's exactly right. It's, it's the process. It's putting in the minutes. That's the process. It's not the product, which is actually finishing what your studies are supposed to be or what your homework is supposed to be or the report or whatever, you know, that you're doing for the day. Yeah, no, love that. Now, on the show, we always love to celebrate failure as a stepping stone to building more character and resilience in our lives. So throughout your career, throughout your life, do you have a favorite failure that really pushed you later on to actually become a better version of yourself? Oh, I have so many failures. I, I mean, I'm <laughs> like the queen of failures. The queen of failures, love that. <laughs> oh, well, I can tell you. So I was working as a waitress. I was such a terrible waitress that when I went to give my notice, I said, look, I want to give my two-week notice. I'm going to be uh, leaving in, in two weeks. And they said, no, no, Barb, it's okay. You can leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like the world's most absent-minded waitress. I think wow. I would do better now, but even so, I, I just look at waiters and waitresses and i'm just in awe when when they're able to to do yes their memories are incredible and i'm a very good tipper i i should say and you have to be <laughs> a really bad waiter or waitress to you know because i just like wow they're so good um but i think probably my biggest failure was being a really horrible army officer and i was in a job that I, it was for engineers. I had no engineering training. I didn't know, I didn't know what a volt was. I didn't know what an amp was. I was supposed to be laying out all these electrical circuits, and I didn't even know. I was like, why does, why does current have to come back? Why <laughs> yeah, why? With this red, this yellow, like. <laughs> yeah, why can't it just go there? And uh, <laughs> and so, um, but. And I remember even when I was commissioned in the Signal Corps, I just, I thought it was the worst thing that ever happened to me. I, I just, I was so devastated because it, it wasn't what I, I wanted to work with language. That's what I'd studied for years. And, uh, and here I'm in this technology thing where I just, I have no gift and no ability. And, um, and then I did terribly at it, but it really did open my mind to the fact that, you know, following your passion with what you learn is not always going to be the best thing for you. Because actually following your passion, that meant I learned 
Slavic languages and literature. That's yeah. my first degree. And there was not a big demand for people whose sole professional expertise at that time was the ability to speak Russian. Yeah, I guess so, literally you could just be on those Russian trawlers and... <laughs> that was about the only Translate. civilian uh, job outside the CIA or, or in NSA. And the thing was, um, you know, this idea of following your passion, what that's really doing is it's saying, you know, just be selfish. Only think of what you want to do because actually oh, you, you shouldn't be thinking about the world and what the world needs. And a lot of the very people who are telling you to follow your passion are people who kind of benefit by saying those kinds of things. They're, they're teachers of you know, disciplines where maybe it's really hard to get a job and they want people taking their discipline and studying their discipline. And of course, I'm gonna tell you to follow this, take this, because it actually sort of secretly benefits them. And I mean, don't get me wrong, I love the fact that I study Russian and that I, uh, and I, and I, I, love, I love the Russian language, I love the Russian people, I, and I, I'm so happy I did that and I wouldn't do it any other way. But at the same time, I am really happy that I, uh, I realize that it's also important to broaden your skill set. And, and one thing is not enough. Um, even if you are a superstar coder, I mean, if you're a super, superstar coder, maybe that's good enough uh, in nowadays. But for most people, it's really good to have several different skills in your skill set. For example, if you're really good um, uh, at software, also being good with language, with the, having a second language or, or a third language. Uh, so having those different kinds of language skills, uh, not only computer languages, but uh, people languages, that can be a really uh, helpful thing. So I think, and also, um, I, I say read a lot. I think it's important to read a lot. And of course, now there's these wonderful, massive open online courses so you can learn a lot. Uh, of so just always keep learning. And it's, you just never know when it's going to come in handy because sooner or later, the stuff you learn will. Yes, and I love this idea of really broadening your passion and really getting practical around like, okay, maybe I have this narrow interest, but how can I make that useful for the wider world, right? Because like you say, solely speaking Russian may not really be very useful for the world, for anyone to actually pay you, right? But if you can sort of add skills on top of that around that, then maybe you'll have a better chance at, at actually finding something you do love, but it also serves the world. And I love that point. Right. And even if you just speak Russian um, and another language, uh, <laughs> if you speak two languages, it, it is a good skill set. You'll be able to teach. Um, it, but if you have even additional skill sets on top of that, it can really broaden career doors for you. Um, and so, um, I, you know, I'm very much enamored of of having some good skill, but combine that with a language skill and you really are doing pretty darn good. Yeah, I love that. Now, before I ask my final question, where can listeners connect with you online? So what's your favorite website, social media platforms, whatever it is? Well, I think um, just go to barbaraoakley.com and I'm also on LinkedIn, so you can connect with me there. So, um, and it has a lot of connections to my books and to the courses I teach. Learning How to Learn is, is actually the world's most popular massive open online course, at least yes. as far as we know. Which is so amazing. So I'm definitely going to link to that. Uh, it's close to about 3 million, just under 3 million now. 3 million. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. That is just absolutely mind-blowing. Uh, my husband and I, I remember we were filming in the basement and looking at each other and saying, you know, why are we even doing this? <laughs> we, uh, we, you know, we didn't even know whether yeah. anybody was actually You had no watch. idea like it was going to just blow up like that? Right. And my, my co-instructor, Terry Sanoski, uh, 
is um, he's just so awesome. You just uh, and the nice thing is people get to meet both of us online. Yes, which is absolutely amazing. Now, my final question, sort of related to this, which is, what is your quest for greatness? So, what's that big vision that you want to bring to the world, whether it's through your work or through your private life? And how can listeners, you know, that love this interview, maybe even support you in that quest? Uh, my big quest is to help people learn more effectively and in ways that actually are truly helpful, not just ways that are ideologically motivated uh, by theories and so forth that are not truly effective. So uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of inertia out there. You might, one, one thing I, I, I like to say occasionally is moving a university is like moving a cemetery. You cannot expect any help from the inhabitants. <laughs> I love that. And it, it's true. It's almost like sometimes, um, I think it's Robert Conquest uh, came up with Conquest Law, which is something like, imagine that, it, uh, that every enterprise is, will eventually be run by a cabal of its enemies. And I, I, I think there's some truth to that, especially, certainly with regards to education. There are some very good groups, but there are some groups that are very deeply self-serving and not, not motivated by the interests of the students. 